1: What can you see right now? Uh, Nothing now. Nothing now. Everybody ready? Okay. So, three, two, one, start stimulation. Yes. Can you
0: see? <laughs> oh my goodness.
1: Can wow. you, what do you see, see, Larry? Yes.
2: What you're hearing is a man named Larry Hester seeing for the first time in 33 years.
1: Yes. Oh, it's my flashing. Goodness. Big time flashing.
0: They're flashing.
2: He's in a medical office surrounded by doctors and his family. And he's wearing a special pair of glasses and staring at a bright light. This video was shot in 2014, roughly a month after Hester had a device surgically implanted in his eye by a surgeon at Duke. A device that allowed him to see light and differentiate it from darkness.
0: It was incredible. It was bright and it was significant. And I I just had to take a deep breath in. It really was a revolutionary technology, and when it came out, there were a lot of stories written about these remarkable emotional moments.
2: That's journalist Eliza Strickland. She's a senior editor at the tech magazine IEEE Spectrum.
0: It was really seen as something of a miracle, even though the vision was very crude. Just the fact that humanity had built a gadget that that could restore any kind of sight was, I think, a really powerful idea.
2: Powerful enough that hundreds of patients like Larry Hester went on to get retinal implants made by a company
0: called Second Sight. Most of them spoke very movingly about what it was like to get even a little bit of light perception back after having nothing for a long time.
2: Second Sight patients were paired with support staff to help them adjust to their implants, and they were supposed to get software updates as well. But then the company ran into trouble. It struggled financially stopped making retinal implants in 2019 and was nearly bankrupt a year later. Last month, it announced a merger, but it's unclear if the new company can help these implant patients. Now, roughly 350 people around the world have technology in their eyes that is unsupported and obsolete.
0: They do not know how long their devices will last. If they have a problem, they don't know if there'll be any repair possible. They cannot count on the company that made the technology for anything, really. The, te- the company is, um, has basically, essentially, washed its hands of this technology and the people.
2: Today on the show, Eliza tells the story of a technological breakthrough that brought patients something extraordinary and the corporate unraveling that may leave them in the dark. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. A neural implant is a device that's placed inside a patient's body and works by interacting with part of their nervous system. Probably the most well-known example is deep brain stimulation, when electrodes are placed inside the brain. DBS is sometimes used for Parkinson's patients. Back when Eliza wrote her first story about retinal implants, the field was promising, but relatively new.
0: In 2011, there were just the beginning of these really exciting developments in neuroprosthetics. There was some work being done in implants to stimulate the spinal cord to enable people who had lost the use of their legs to walk again. There was a lot of very preliminary work on brain implants and what could be done with that. There were even companies talking about memory prosthetics, like for people with, you know, Alzheimer's or, or other memory problems, that there might be a way to put in an implant that would assist. But it was all, it was all really early stages, and only a few of these things have advanced to the point of being commercial, you know, clinical products.
2: At this sort of beginning of that decade, did did researchers and companies and patients seem optimistic that, that there was promise in doing this?
0: Oh, yeah. There was a lot of excitement. Um, and I think maybe people didn't realize just how long it would take to move from exciting results in the lab to FDA-approved clinical products that would uh, thrive in the medical marketplace.
2: One company that saw opportunity in this potential marketplace was Second Sight. They would go on to build the retinal implant known as the Argus that Eliza wrote about.
0: Second Sight began with a group of researchers who were investigating whether you could stimulate the retina to produce a flash of light. And there were several researchers and engineers who are working together on this. One of the, the youngest people on the team was, I think, a then a medical student named Robert Greenberg. And he saw this and just wanted to make it his life's work. And so he and others co-founded Second Sight in 1998.
2: Second Sight tested its first retinal implant, the Argus, in 2002. It built on that system to make the Argus 2, which was approved by the FDA
0: in 2013. It was the first of its kind, I think second site seemed to have a durable implant that provided stable vision. Um, they had a good smart system. But again, the site that it provided was really rudimentary. And you know, the founders talk about this and admit they were starting at a very low bar. And they, you know, the, that one of the co-founders, Robert Greenberg, told me they had a lot of discussions internally how good was good enough, like when should they try to bring it to patients, should they try and increase the resolution before bringing it out. But they decided to bring it out even with this sort of crude, black and white, patches of light and dark.
1: In Second Sight's Argus II retinal prosthesis system, a miniature video camera in the eyeglasses captures the scene.
2: The glasses, which look like Oakley's, were connected to a video processing unit about the size of a cell phone, which patients could wear on their belt. Video is processed by a small portable unit and transformed into instructions which are sent back to the glasses. Those instructions were then transmitted wirelessly to the implant in the patient's eye, which used electricity to stimulate cells in the retina and send a signal to the brain. Patients, most of whom hadn't seen in years, were able to perceive light. Eliza wrote about several of them.
0: Barbara Campbell was a volunteer in the clinical trial, so even before the Argus to retinal implant was approved uh, she was trying it out and she's very independent and, and capable uh, even before the, the implants but she really enjoyed having enhanced ability to navigate the world you know she talked about being able to find the bus stop more easily and uh, and seeing the light above her doorway when she was coming home uh, and she just enjoyed it too in addition to finding it useful. She just liked having that you know that that's part of that sense back and it wasn't the vision she'd had before she lost her sight but it was, a new sense really that she learned how to use and and enjoy in the world.
2: I've just I've watched videos of people kind of around this time, we're talking 2013, 2014 and they they talk about you know how how great it is that they're that they are seeing flashes of light that they were never able to see before. Um, when you talk to patients and you've covered this for years what was their experience?
0: I'd say the experience varied. There was one patient that my co-author Mark Harris spoke with, Haroon Perk, in the Netherlands, who was able to get good enough vision that he was able to do archery and skiing. It was really remarkable. But then we spoke with other patients who said it wasn't really that helpful, that that they weren't getting enough resolution to really give them what they wanted.
2: These devices were expensive, roughly $150,000, though in some cases covered partly by insurance. And I wonder kind of what the universe was like surrounding these patients. Who was helping them? And what was the company saying to them about how much support they would get?
0: Yeah, so the device itself, right, cost about $150,000, and that was almost always covered by insurance, mostly at least. So people would have the implantation done by a retinal surgeon, and then the sort of tuning process of them learning to use it would be done partly by their you know surgical team but it seems like more often by second sight technicians they had these vision rehab specialists the rehab specialists would come to a user who had a new implant and say okay like i'm putting a picture on a screen you know can you tell me what shape it is and the person would say looks like a blob and then they the technician would kind of tune it would say okay i'm going to put a little bit more electricity to this electrode a little bit less to this one and they'd say, now tell me what it looks like. And the person might say, oh, it looks like a square. And they'd say, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really an interesting process of, of sort of tuning the bionics to, to make it work for for each person.
2: One of the ideas I find so interesting here was that these devices were intended to be upgradable. And that I think in in one of your stories, you compared it to an iPhone, right? Like you just update the operating system. That's obviously, you know, me making a crude analogy, but... How was that supposed to work?
0: Yeah, people were really counting on those kind of upgrades, I I think, because the initial technology was really rudimentary, but the company was always talking about what they were aiming for. Um, The upgrades that they promised people were all software-based. They weren't saying they were going to go in and and fiddle with the actual electrodes in the eye. They weren't saying they were going to replace those and put in new ones. They talked about trying for color vision. They talked about... uh, thermal imaging or face recognition so people could get a better sense of where people were against the backgrounds um, and just sort of software tricks to get more information from those 60 electrodes. And they were talking about this up until around 2018. Uh, and then from the patients that we spoke with, Second Sight just kind of went silent.
2: When we come back, 2nd sight patients get a letter, and the news is not good. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants.
2: patients, people who had the Argus, this implant, a letter saying that it would phase out the retinal implant technology to kind of focus on a brain implant for blindness that they had begun working on. From your reporting, what did patients think when they got that letter?
0: People were hesitantly optimistic. It was like, okay, well, Second Sight's been here for us so far. I guess they'll keep taking care of us. A lot of people said it's a shame it's not gonna go further. Like they had really been hoping for upgrades. They'd been hoping to see how the company would further develop the technology. But I don't think people realized that Second Sight's promises were, ended up being pretty hollow. Like I, I would expect that Second Sight made those promises of continued support with the best of intentions. But when the company did run out of money and nearly went out of business, they just weren't able to hold up their end of the bargain.
2: Even though Second Sight's technology was pretty dazzling, its business model had serious flaws. Chief among them, there simply weren't enough qualifying patients to sell Argus devices to. The implants were only approved for people with the most serious retinitis pigmentosa. Plus, the $150,000 price tag probably wasn't enough to offset the costs of patient rehab and support. In 2020, Second Sight had trouble getting financing to stay afloat. Something the company attributed to the pandemic. In March of that year, it laid off most of its staff. Within weeks, Second Sight auctioned off manufacturing equipment and computers. Just last month, they announced a merger with Nano Precision Medical. That company's CEO told Eliza he would try to do what's right for patients with Second Sight implants. But it's unclear what that even is.
0: People have these retinal implants, some of them are still working, a few people have had issues where they've stopped working. Um, People who are continuing to use them, some say, well, I just use it a little bit every day because I want to keep it going for as long as possible. Other people say, I'm just going to live my life and see how far I can get with it. Some people are saying, I'm going to get it taken out because it's unclear which kind of medical procedures I can have with this. You know, There was uh, one patient we talked to a lot who was Unable to get an MRI because his doctor wasn't clear on whether he could have an MRI with this retinal implant, and Second Sight wasn't picking up the phone to answer questions.
1: I
2: was struck by one story in your reporting about a guy who crowdsourced replacement parts.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was Harun Perk in, in the Netherlands. Um, after the company stopped making and supporting the device, he dropped his external video processing unit, just like you know, everyone's dropped an iPhone and it smashed to pieces. And he thought about what to do, whether he should just say, well, that was the end of my vision experiment, but he decided in the end that he would like to get his vision back. And so, yeah, he just reached out to the community of Argus Uners in Europe and found somebody who had a, a, a spare unit or maybe they'd stopped using that unit. So they sent it to him, another doctor had some spare parts. So yeah, he had to cobble together replacement parts um, to get a, a functioning system going again, which was impressive that he was able to, to make that happen. Um, But people whose actual implant fails, they have no recourse at this time.
2: Thinking back to the optimism around sort of neural implants and frankly, the focus on it now, you know, Elon Musk is interested in this. It certainly raises questions about what happens as devices and implants and technology become obsolete. Who is supposed to watch out for patients?
0: As I tried to find the answer to that, I, I dug around a little bit in the history of pacemakers because I figured, well, pacemakers have been here for a long time. They are uh, a life-preserving technology. If if your pacemaker gives out, you're in trouble. Um, yeah. So it turns out there are now regulations about sort of interoperability, but there weren't always. Uh, when pacemakers were new, uh, there were competing companies that would make these devices, and They have a limited battery life. So when your battery is close to giving out, you have to get it taken out and have a new one put in. But in the early days, the battery devices were not compatible with the electrodes from other companies. So if you were going in to get a replacement, the doctor had to see if if the new replacement would be a match for the electrodes that were going through your arteries. If not, they'd have to pull out the electrodes, which is actually quite a, a dangerous procedure. You can create scar tissue. So eventually there are regulations passed that all the electrodes and all the battery units had to be compatible with each other, which was great for patients, a very good step forward. Also regulations now say there has to be clear marking on the outside of every battery unit so that it's visible through medical imaging. So an ER doctor knows immediately what they're dealing with. That kind of thing seems like it should probably happen for neural implants too, but it's unclear right now to what responsibility they have in terms of long-term support
2: Second site also has a handful of patients who had a device implanted directly in their brains. That device, called the Orion, is still in clinical trials, but the patients may be in the same boat as those with retinal devices.
0: We spoke with one of those people who was involved in the Orion clinical trial who said that now that the company is in such dire straits, he wishes he had not done it. He's just nervous about what's going to happen. At the conclusion of the trial, he plans to have the device taken out, even though it is giving him a fair amount of vision and and autonomy in the world. It's very unclear what's going to happen, both to these people who are testing out the brain implant and to the technology itself.
2: You've talked to patients over several years now. Um, Do they feel that this
0: grand experiment was worth it? Some people felt like at least they were contributing to science and they were proud of that fact. Others felt that it had given them something useful, that the implants had given them a new kind of independence or autonomy. Others just felt really angry and kind of used by the company um, and felt like they would not have signed up for the, for the technology if they'd known how the company would ultimately fail to support them.
2: There is a line in your story, um, failure is an inevitable part of innovation which is true. It's true in in almost, you know, every human endeavor. And I wonder how the medical device community or even how patients wrestle with that, right? Because the stakes are just so much higher Mm -hmm. than that piece of software.
0: Yeah. And you think about the choice people make if they have this early stage device presented to them. Like, you, know, you think about when you buy a piece of technology, you're like, should I buy an electric car now or should I wait another four years for it to be better and more established and for the batteries to be better? When you have people having to make those decisions about technology that's going to their own bodies, it's really much higher stakes. It seems like there will be more of these conversations in the coming years uh, as neural implants are becoming a reality and these kind of technologies are going to be part of our new cyborg age.
2: Eliza Strickland, thank you very much. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Eliza Strickland is a senior editor at IEEE Spectrum. She reported the story with Mark Harris. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you missed it, I want to recommend you listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next? It's about how Texas is going after trans kids and their families. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We'll be back next week with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.